where you going? No, man. You got the right classroom. Come on in, take a seat beside me, my friend. Hey, look, here come T.A. Charlie. Let's see what he got to say. Can you believe it's the 1st of November and we're celebrating show 300? You're watching The Road to Concord with Professor Joe Bakanovic. Confetti everywhere. Homeroom is on Rumble. Just go to Rumble and search the channels for The Road to Concord. It's one word. When you find it, you go ahead and you click follow. It might mean you got to set up an account, but it's fast. It's easy. It's free. I did it. You can do it. For those technologically challenged members of the class, you can also catch us on Facebook, Twitch, and Twitter, and even on YouTube today. And uh, <clears throat> you can catch the podcast after the show. It's uploaded to Podbean, iHeartRadio, and Spotify, and eventually to BitChute. Just look for The Road to Concord. You can go to the blog page. That's theroadtoconcord.com. That's where you find your show notes, study notes, and handouts for the class. Finally, you can email a professor at joe at the road to concord.com. He's a little slow, but he'll eventually get around to you. You like saying that entirely too much. Uh Uh-huh, I do. (laughs) If you find our classes helpful, please click the thumbs up, like, subscribe, and share it with those you think could benefit from it. Just warn them, uh, Joe is an acquired taste. Hey, we all know T.A. Charlie isn't all there. Now, just stay seated and give it a chance. You soon realize we not might be the smartest, but we each independently form opinions based on reason and logic. We're free thinkers. Let's see what the road to Concord with Professor Joe Bakanovic has on the lesson plan for today. We gotta, we gotta be free hey. thinkers. Nobody's gonna pay us to think around here. Makes me wonder why everybody's here today. <laughs> it's most important subject, and they line up <laughs> the silly ones. And well, sometimes <laughs> almost went the wrong direction. Morning, folks. It is our three hundredth show. Not like that's a huge milestone, but I didn't think I'd ever get this far to begin with. <laughs> so you know, what can I say? Worship Wednesday. We're going to, this is the third show in our Bible 101 series. Um, I guess I need to get serious now. Uh, real quick, show programming note. Um, I told you all yesterday that I'm, I'm not, have not been feeling, excuse me, I haven't been feeling uh, Founders Friday and, and Logic Friday, you know, Fallacy Friday. I haven't been feeling that all that much lately. Um, where I've been inclined to go more and more towards Scripture. And I know since we're doing the Bible 101 series here on Wednesdays, I can't feed the more advanced members of the of the class that are looking for deeper scriptural things. I might do that on Fridays for a while. I don't know if it'll start this Friday or next Friday. We might just cut up class this Friday. I don't know. You'll tune in and find out. Could be one or the other. Won't be both. But what I'm thinking about is um, taking some of the subjects from the Bible 101 and diving deeper into them on Fridays, at least for a while. Um, I can still tie it to what's going on in the world today. Trust me, I'm good at that. Um, Today, what we're going to be talking about is um, how to rightly interpret and understand your Bible. This is basically Bible study 101. I mean, just the simplest. Bible study one. Now, I have put a rather another rather lengthy section together for you on your show notes. You go to the road to Concord, you look for today, November 1st. What you're going to find is roughly a bunch of links and um, some videos 
in the rough order of what we're going to ad address in the class today. You're going to find a lot of work in here from um, Dr. Michael Heiser, and I'll explain why in a minute. But this is also David Pawson. He's from England. He's very good and very helpful. This is a, a cultural context of the biblical world introduction. That's a YouTube video I found for you. And there's a couple of books and some other things in here. And we will go through all of this as I go through the show today. I'll, I'll be hitting on all of this for you. So bear with me because I'm going to be bouncing back and forth between screens a lot today. What I want to do first before I start off. <clears throat> normally, I'll tell you there's no reason to listen to this crazy idiot on, on a lot of reasons and you know a lot of things, a lot of subjects. And I'm like, I don't know why you're listening to me. I don't understand it. This is one subject where I'm going to get a little arrogant, a little cocky. And I'm going to tell you there are a lot of people out there who will put forth their opinion, how to study the Bible, what it means, how to interpret it. I wish most of them would sit down and shut up because when I watch them and I listen to them, I realize all they're doing is confusing people because they themselves are confused. Now, I, I don't mean to be ugly to them. I don't. Honestly, I don't. It, it, it does get my dander up here with this subject a little bit because there's a there's a lot of garbage out there. People are coming to, folks are seeking, then they come to these people and they're looking for help and advice. And what they run into is just more babble. And by that, I, biblical means, I mean, confusion. The, the scriptures flat out tell you few should seek to be teachers. Few, because you're held to a higher standard and you will be punished harder. It doesn't necessarily mean you're going to be condemned, but you're going to get some more lashes. I, if if I make it into the kingdom, it will be as a man through fire and I will have a lot of lashes on my back. And I'm aware of that. But the, the, the reason I say, I, I know what I'm doing here today. I know, I know what I'm going to be doing here today. And I know why I know it. There is a right and a wrong way to approach anything. And your Bible is no different. You know, when you're studying your Bible is no different. So my philosopher's hat is firmly screwed on tight today. And a lot of believers right there will stop. Oh, I don't want nothing to do with philosophy. You got to take it on faith. You don't understand your Bible then. You need to listen to me. You don't have to keep following me, but to this class, you need to listen. Because your Bible is a philosophy book. Your Bible is a theological philosophy book, a spiritual philosophy book by definition. And if you're going to study it, you have to study it as a spiritual philosopher. There's actually a word for them, theologians. So if you're getting into the Greek, you're going to find out it's all connected to philosophy. This, and there's a right and a wrong way to do this. And for those of you who don't know this, I have been, I've got my little letters on the wall. I got my little piece of paper says I have been classically trained as a philosopher, but more than that, I'm a practicing philosopher. So today, as we go through some of this stuff, this is one of the few times where I will claim I've got expertise in the subject we're discussing. And I wish a lot more people would take the time to build it before I, I have no doubt they mean well. I don't doubt their zeal and love of God, but man, I wish they'd learn what they're doing before they start. Case in point, the Bible is true because the Bible says the Bible is true. If you don't believe everything in the Bible, you'll be tortured for eternity because the Bible says so. Circular logic is outdated. 
good gosh, let me count the fallacies in that. This is a scoffer's post. People who think that the Bible relies only on its own assertions to, to the Bible can be tested. This right here, this, this meme, I used it on purpose. This is blasphemy from a biblical perspective. From the perspective of the individual who created it, thinking they were making a cute little point, you think, well, you're pointing out a fallacy in the Bible. You know, it's true because it says it's true. Fallacy of authority, you know, appeal to authority. You committed a fallacy when you did this. So you're not as smart as, you know, I, I know that the author of this meme is never going to see this, but whoever did this meme isn't not as cute as they think they are, not as intelligent as they think they are, because this is a fallacy in and of itself. And it comes from people who will not take the Bible on the Bible's terms. Now, why is this a problem for believers? Because the majority of your pastors are doing that too. They commit the same fallacies. They are not taking scripture on scriptural terms. And they've been through college, you know, seminary school to learn how to do this. If you're a pastor and you're upset with me, watch the whole show before you start screaming at me. We used to have a pastor watch this show. He quit. He and his wife quit watching. Because I have no problem pointing a finger at those who purport, you know, they, they, they assert themselves as teachers of the flock. Well, guess what? You've got a teacher of the flock here in Joe Bakanovic, and he is going to start with you first. Just like he starts with himself first. So if you're going to be a teacher, I'll be very gracious, a lot of grace for the sheep. If you're a self-appointed teacher, you're going to find me vicious when I see that you're teaching wrong. I am a, I'm, I'm a, I'm a Gideon when it comes to defending the word of Yahweh. Even when I'm knowingly breaking it, I will point the finger at myself and say, you know, you're a sinner, Joe. I got that. And I don't apologize for the fact that I, I'm, you know, not making excuses here with that. It's not the point. Point here is, is I know the rule book, not as well as I want to, not as well as I hope to someday do it, but I know it from front cover to the back cover and I swallow it whole. And most teachers don't. I found a meme online that was talking about, well, how to interpret the Bible. And one of its things is, is it in the Old Testament? And it says, you know, it's like a flow chart. It says yes and no. And it says yes. And he goes, well, Jesus changed that. You can ignore it. Jesus didn't change everything in the Old Testament. He didn't change a single thing in the Old Testament. He told you that. So this is what I mean by teachers and I are not going to get along very well. All right. Let's get going here. First things first. Why should I study the Bible? Now, what, what's Why? Why study it? Well, this is Joe's rules for why you should study it. First and foremost, to learn about the creator and his nature. Second, it provides metaphysical answers found nowhere else in human experience. Why am I, you know, what, what, why am I here? What's the purpose of life? You know, et cetera, et cetera. Those answers can be tested. This is the only theological, you know, religion, you know, story of God. And this is the only one that can be tested on its own merits. All others cannot. The logistician in me can prove that to you. If you want to take the time, we can do that on another show someday. 
but the Bible can be tested. If you test it on its own merits, you study it to better understand the biblical worldview so that you understand those merits and test it properly. I can scientifically test the Bible. People tell you, you can't do it. Yes, you can. You just haven't tried. And that's because most people don't understand science. So once you better understand the biblical worldview, studying the Bible will then help you guard against false teachings, increase your level of discernment, help you become wise unto salvation, understanding what it is you're actually supposed to be doing, keep you from wrongly dividing the word, wrongly interpreting scripture, wrongly teaching it, and it will also bless you when its principles are kept and applied, and that is not the prosperity gospel. You could be Job being suffering all of the, the plagues and torments that were heaped on him by Satan and still be blessed. Also, you study the Bible to learn ancient history, which is ignored by the secular world. One of the largest natural gas and oil deposits in the world was found by a man who was studying scripture. He misunderstood it. He misinterpreted it. And he still found oil in a place where there are geologists, geologists, uh, people who study geology. Yeah, like, geologists. Geologists. <laughs> oh, boy, me and my language lately. Um, they said that there shouldn't be oil there. And yet they found it. They found it under a mountain, exactly like Moses said they would. Go figure. So what we're wanting to do, we study the Bible so that we can see through a biblical lens. And what do we mean by that? See through a biblical lens. We want to see the world, know it, understand it through a biblical worldview. How does you know the Bible see and teach the world? And that way, we can conclude that God has a, when we do that, we will conclude God has a Hebrew mindset. It's a biblical way of thinking. And as we grasp the concept of learning to think like God, like Yahweh, our life will begin to prosper and move forward as we align with his kingdom purposes. I grab these memes from different places. They're not perfect for what I'm doing. I, did, I don't have time to make my own, although I think I'm going to have to start trying to learn to do that. That's one of the things that's going to eat up the time in the prep for these shows. But what I wanted to point out, I grab these things because they suit the purpose. They're more of anything else. There's something for you to look at, and they're they're for they're just bulletin points to teach tell me what I wanted to talk to you about. It, we study the scripture to understand the nature and thinking of of the Creator. That's how science was developed. Science was developed by Christians trying to better understand the nature of God, Creator Yahweh, by studying His creation in the way it works. And they find that it works according to laws, just like everything in the Bible says it does. It, the world can be better understood just by studying the scriptures. It's a philosophy book. It is. And if it's a philosophy book, there's a right and a wrong way to approach it. And this is what I want to help people understand before you even get going. You got to put it in its proper context to what you're going to study. But before even that, which version of the Bible? Remember, we we did a, we did parts of this when we were going over the different translations and how we know that we can trust them. Which version of the Bible should I read? Well, good question, right? This is the picture from that other class. This is the different types of Bibles. The NASB, the Amplified, the RSV, ERV, New King James, all of these different versions. The, and off to the right, the message. And so the one is a word-for-word -word formal equivalent. 
The others are paraphrases or functional equivalents. I don't like those type of Bibles. I like myself, the NASB. That's me. We'll get to that in a minute. Got a little show note here for myself. This is the first one of the... There we go. Let's go over here. I'll blow this up for you. You're... This is in your show notes. You can go find this later. You don't necessarily have to worry about it right now. I'll, I'll kind of read this for you. I'm going to use a lot of work from Dr. Michael Heiser. He's with the Lagos or Logos Project in Jacksonville, Florida. He passed away earlier this year from pancreatic cancer. But he does excellent work when it comes to how to study your Bible and keeping it in proper context. This is one of his uh, posts on his blog page. And it's Bible translation recommendations. I'm going to read this for you because I can't do any better. He says, the first thing I usually say is that the best Bible translation is the one you'll read faithfully. He says, I am far more concerned with that than staking a position on translation philosophy. I'm even willing to make allowance for paraphrases in the re- in this regarding, though I really dislike them. He says, ought to be reading some version with uh, consistency, though. In other words, he'll even put up with a Bible like the message if you'll read it, even though he and I, neither one of us would consider the message to be a Bible because it's the strongest paraphrase. We already covered that on a previous show. Second, Michael Heiser, he says, second, I always point out that there is no one Bible translation that is consistently superior to all others. Though paraphrases are consistently unfaithful to the text, But see my caveat above. He's already commented on that. He says, all translations have problems. They all take liberties. They all have strengths. If you are interested in comparing and analyzing Bible translations, I recommend Better Bibles blog. And that's somebody else's work he points you to. He says, third, I recommend that everyone read from more than one translation. It's a good idea to become acquainted with the basic differences in approaches to the translation in the Bible. I speak here of dynamic equivalence and formal equivalence. He puts those in quotation marks, usually referred to as literal translation. I prefer formal equivalence, but I recommend reading from at least one translation that follows each approach. The above link contains uh, listings of how these versions stack up, at least the writer of the article does, you know, and he's got it to the approaches he linked you. And fourth, he says, you should pick a translation that is textually up to date. For example, he goes, I want a Bible that adopts readings in its running text from the Dead Sea Scrolls where they are demonstrably superior to the Masoretic texts. My test case for this is Deuteronomy 32.8, Deuteronomy 32.43. The former should read Sons of God. He's quoting the ESV. He was an editor on the recent ESV translations. It says gods in the NRSV or something like heavenly beings in the NET Bible or heavenly court in the NLT, instead of sons of Israel. Verse 43 should read, bow down to him, all you gods, in the SV and NRSV, or something akin to it, like the NLT, let's all God's angels worship him. The preface of the particular version will alert you to such textual issues. This note, though, that the ESV is terrible and basically unique at Deuteronomy 32.17, where it contains the meaning of Deuteronomy 32.8 and 43. So you see my scholarly journal articles in this verse. Dr. Heiser can sometimes be difficult to follow. He's an academic. 
Um, he's worse than I am when it comes to being geeky and wonky and, and like with this. Um, if you're a Hebrew scholar, he is going to get down into the roots of Hebrew with you. And he's going to talk about things that Charlie understands, but I know what they are, but over my head, because I don't pay no attention to them. All I hear is because it's English. I never did do well in that subject. The point here, though, is when you're picking the Bible you want to read, I agree, Dr. Heisler, the one you're going you're gonna to work on. I use two. If I'm just reading the scriptures to read through them and refresh myself with them, I use an amplified Bible. Why? Amplified has extended definitions of the meanings in it so that it, it, it's like a blanket definition for words or concepts that are not easily translated into English. Contrary to what people might think, you can't word for word Hebrew into English and make it make a whole lot of sense any more than you can with German. Uh, and other languages are this way too. Some cases, it, 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 there's just things lost in translation. Amplified Bible helps add that back. Not perfect, but it is the, it, unless you're going to sit down with a, with a word for word Bible and an interlinear Bible, or unless you read biblical Hebrew and Greek, Unless you're going to do that one or the other, the Amplified Bible is your best overall reading through my scriptures Bible that I've ever encountered. When I'm studying my scriptures, I study from an NASB study Bible. It's got all the notes in the bottom of it. I've also got an ESV study Bible, and that's the one that that's the one Dr. Heiser was actually helping edit. It is not as literal as the NASB. I, because of who I am and the nature of who I am, I study with the NASB because it is a very literal Bible. It's, it's not as easy to just read until you've learned it a little better. But I still use it. And when I am doing a lesson or a class and I need to know what the scriptures are actually saying, I'll have my interlinear Bible out, which is a translation Bible. And it'll tell you what the Greek and the Hebrew actually say. And I use several programs online, which we've already covered in a previous show. And they'll help me link to the concordances into the lexicons to understand the original meaning of the Hebrew or Greek word behind it. And I will read three or four different translations of, of that passage from other interpreters. Bible Gateway is great for this. So is Bible Hub. Um, I, we've linked you all to that in previous shows. So you got to find a Bible that you're actually going to read. That's the first thing you're going to have to do. The next thing, how should I study the Bible? What do you mean, how? You just pick it up, start reading it, Joe. No, 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 no. That's, that's not a good way to do this. <laughs> it's, it's not. I've given you several things, and we're back here to the road to concord.com. Your show notes for today. Here's a video on why you should study the Bible and five powerful reasons why. Here's Dr. Heiser's uh, essay on uh, picking your Bible. Here's how should we study the Bible. And we're going to cover this one here in a minute. This is Heiser's Laws for Studying the Bible. But this is also how to interpret the Bible. This is the coma Bible study method. We'll cover both of these in a minute. Ten things you should know about studying the Bible. Here's a very good little video by Dr. Heiser. I also put down here a book, a really good book about unlocking the Bible. It's a unique overview of the whole Bible by David Paulson. And here's a video about how to study your Bible by David Paulson. He was recently called home as well. 
all the good stars in the sky are being swept from the sky on us here. And if you understand the scripture, that means we're losing our teachers. So real quick, Dr. Heiser's rules on how to study your Bible. We're going to be here for a minute because he helped teach me how to study my Bible better. And I've actually had conversations with this man by via email. I wish I could have met him. I respect him. Use that in whichever way you want in your own judgment of Dr. Heiser. Heiser's Law for Studying the Bible. There is no substitute for close attention to the biblical text. In other words, pay attention. There is not a wasted word in your Bible. You should be observing the biblical text in the original languages. If you cannot, never trust one translation in a passage. Use several and then learn skills for understanding why they disagree. Right here, we need to... Uh, we need to gloss over the, I mean, add a gloss in this. A gloss means I need to expand on this for you. I need to explain it. I, I, I'm going to do this because I've heard hours and hours and hours and hours and hours of Dr. Heiser. I, I know what he would tell you here. Basically, if you're using a study Bible, read the introduction that tells you their methodology for interpreting the scriptures so that you understand how that study Bible's editors put it together. So when, yes, sir? You mean we should read the, introduction to the bible that tells how they put it together yeah you should read that yes because oh, the nasb important? is slightly different than the esv which accounts for why the esv is not as literal a translation it's very important yes you'll be surprised some of the things that's in there yeah when well, we surprised somebody in our own congregation with that not too long ago but this is what he's talking about and then in you can use interlinear bibles too that's you know like it'll show you the greek and then underneath it the english and if you've got a good online one it'll link you to the definitions for those greek words um then heiser says patterns in the text are more important than word studies charlie i told you that dr heiser's one of my teachers do you see where i'm starting to learn patterns and concepts from yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it was beneficial that I'm naturally, you know, inclined to find them to begin with anyhow. Yeah. Okay. That's important. And the patterns are important. Heiser says the New Testament's use of the Old Testament is the key to understanding how prophecy works. Well, wait a minute. If the New Testament changed everything. Yeah, 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 yeah. It says. The Bible must be interpreted in context, and that context isn't your own or that of your theological tradition. In other words, your denomination. It is the context that produced it, the ancient Near East Mediterranean worldview. Put another way, if you're letting your theological traditions filter the Bible to you, you aren't doing Bible study or exegesis. Exegesis is interpretation of the scriptures. The Bible is a divine human book. Treat it as such. He says, put another way, God chose people to write the biblical text and people write using grammar in styles understood by their peers and with deliberate intent. And so the Bible did not just drop from heaven, study it as though some person actually wrote it, not like the result of a paranormal event. He says, if it's weird, it is important. In other words, is there, it's there for a reason. It's not random. Don't hire someone to stock the grocery shelves who can't read the labels. Or don't put your meds in the daily pill tray unless you can read the instructions. Put another way, systematic theology isn't helpful and can be misleading if its parts are not derived from the exegesis of the original text. 
Biblical theology is done from the ground up, not the top down. And so, see number two on this list. Go back up. This is what I mean by most teachers should be sitting down and learning from more learned teachers because they do this. And then they teach the sheep this way. And no, notice what Heiser just says. It can be misleading. It often is. You have to start from the ground up. That's what our series here is all about, Bible 101. Heiser continues. He says, if after you've done the grunt work of context-driven exegesis, context-driven interpretation, what the Bible text says disturbs you, let it. Oh, that is huge. If it bugs you, live with it. Don't start massaging the text so that you feel better about it. Then he says, build a network of exegetical insights that you can keep drawing upon. The connections are the result of supernatural mind guiding the very human writers. The only way to think that mind's thoughts are to find the network one node at a time. What does he mean by network, Joe? In other words, as you like when you're studying Paul, the more I study Paul, the more I learn how Paul thinks and the more I understand how Paul's using scripture. So the next letter I read on Paul or the next time I reread Galatians, it speaks to me differently. And the more I study the whole Bible, the more I see the divine author's hand in every one of the human authors that wrote the scriptures for him. And they all start thinking alike. And you will start to slowly come into that biblical culture. There is no shortcut here. This is time work. If it is not valuable enough to take your time in work, then your faith is very weak. If that hurts, take it up with the person in your mirror. Truth is truth. I'm really, re this is why I'm an acquired taste. I have no problem telling you fire's hot, water's wet. It's not meant to be personal and it's not meant to be an attack. If I tell you that you are not going to get close to God without a study of his word, that's fire's hot and water's wet, folks. Well, the Holy Spirit, no, he didn't. The Holy Spirit didn't do that for you by magic. No, he didn't. No, he did not. Well, how do you know that, Joe? I've studied the rule book. Tells me he doesn't work that way. Not even with the apostles. Well, the Holy Spirit taught Paul. No, he spent three years in the desert with Yeshua, with Jesus. Paul's words, not mine. That wasn't just divine. Here it is. Doesn't work that way. Now, there's another uh, article in your, and th this one here is, I've got it out at slightly out of place. It's a little bit of a, um, a bridge. This article here is uh, how to interpret the Bible, the coma Bible study method. And it doesn't mean like you're in a coma. This is an acronym. I'm going to skip some of it. This is link is in your show, your, your show notes. It says context, genre. What kind of writing is this? Old Testament or New Testament? Poetry, narrative, prophecy, a letter, et cetera, et cetera. History. What do you know about the author and the audience and the situation that prompted the writing of the book? See the introduction to the book online Bible dictionaries like Blue Bible, no, blueletterbible.org, et cetera, et cetera. If you've got a study Bible like mine, my NASB, Zondervan NASB study Bible, it's got an introduction to every chapter in the Bible, and it tells me who's writing and why, when. And it even outlines it for me. 
it, it does an outline for that book of the Bible. It helps me study it. Text. What has happened so far? What's the main point of the passage immediately before and after this one? And there are any logical or uh, thematic connections to the passage that you're now reading. This is what Charlie will tell you. You have to read the Bible with 20-20 vision, 20 lines before and 20 lines after the line your your passage you're studying. With Paul, you better read the whole letter before you go study what you're doing because he's got a nasty habit of starting something and then coming back to it at the very end of the letter and everything in between was a parenthetical. Paul's tough, folks. Observation. What's the tone or emotion of the passage? Is it encouraging? Is it warning? Is it rebuking? Et cetera, et cetera. This is the O. The first was C, context, observation, meaning, application, coma. So second part of observation, what seems to be the main point of the passage you're reading? Are there any major subsections or breaks in the text? Look at paragraph divisions, key conjunctions like but or therefore, et cetera. What are the themes of each section? What words or ideas seem to be repeated? Let's take a break here for just a moment. This is why you have to pay attention to the methodology of your interpretation. There were no quotation, I mean, there are no punctuation marks in Hebrew and Greek, in the, in the uh, Konoine Greek, your biblical Greek. So a lot of times, it is up to the interpreter to decide where the period went or the comma. Y'all do realize how quickly I can change the meaning of a sentence by where I put a comma. Let's eat Bob. No comma. Let's eat, comma, Bob. I just changed the whole meaning of that sentence from cannibalism to Bob and I are going to lunch with a comma. Depending on how your Bible translators interpret the scriptures, you can have problems like that in the translation. And keep in mind also that there were no chapters or verses. Yes, and many no paragraphs. And many times that uh, you move from one chapter to another, and it's just a continuation where we put a break in there where there should not be. Yes, and then the, the, the way we break it, we can interrupt the flow of thought there. This happens to Paul a lot. And this is why people misunderstand Paul a lot. This also happens in the prophets. If you're going to be a serious Bible student, you're going to have a copy of a book like a Bible like I have at home. There are no passage markers in it. No chapter, no verse. It's just the book. And you just start reading. It reads very differently than the way you're used to reading your Bible. Because there's no, if you want to find it, you got to know where to go find it in that copy of the Bible. Because you can't go, oh, this is the chapter, and mm, that ain't in there. You got to know whereabouts in Isaiah to go find that line. So I've got that for a reason. Let's go back to the coma passage. Now the M's, meaning. How would you sum up the meaning of this passage in your own words? Are there specific instructions and commands given to the reader? How does this passage relate to Jesus and the gospel? What does this passage teach me about God, his people, and the life in present world? Application. Thinking. How do the truths of this text shape the way I view God, myself, the world, and my present circumstances? Feeling. How do the truths of this text inspire greater gratitude, humility, and or joy in Christ? Living. 
what attitudes and actions need to change because of the truths I've studied from this passage? Practically, what steps need to be taken to live in the light of the truths of this text? Praying, how should I respond to this passage in prayer? Examples, you know, worship, repentance, petitions, etc. You can also use the link to download Coma Bible Study PDF Worksheet. Hope this method can help you. That's good practical advice. I put that in there so that if those who think I'm using too much of Dr. Heiser don't like it, they got another voice. They're not very far apart from each other. They're very close to each other in their approach and thinking. I happen to have my own ideas of how to do this. And I was already studying the Bible pretty much the exact same way Heiser tells me to before I found Dr. Heiser. One of the reasons I promote Dr. Heiser a lot. A lot of people don't like him because he promotes the divine counsel worldview. We'll get to that in a few minutes. But that's the reason I accept it is because it's in my Bible. It's right there. I knew about it before I found him. I think that's how I found him because I was looking for help with that subject. My ideas on how to study the Bible. This is me. This is Joe here. Do not be afraid to apply logic and reason to your studies. Isaiah 1.8, come, let us reason together. That's Yahweh, God, talking to Isaiah. He says, come on, let's reason together, you know, Isaiah. Go think this through. Two, ditch everything you think you know about the Bible every time you pick it up. I didn't say forget it. I said ditch what you think you know. You've got everything that you know. Don't hold on to it dogmatically. Because today you might pick that chapter up that you've been reading 17, 15 bazillion times in your life. And today the Holy Spirit might say, look what you've been missing this whole time, Joe. And I'll go, shazam. But if I hold on to that dogma that I know, I won't change my mind. And the Holy Spirit has wasted his time. Three, approach it anew every time you pick it up. Four, let the Bible speak for itself on its own terms. Five, this requires you to learn about the historic, cultural, and linguistic context behind it. Six, understand the concept of inerrancy. We're going to get to that. Seven, then after you've done these things, let scripture interpret scripture. Eight, look for the spiritual concept first, then the physical reflections. What is the spiritual message or lesson or prophecy or prediction or whatever it is you're studying? And then how does it reflect in the material physical world? You might find that there are many shadows in this world for one spiritual thing. Nine, the author's original intentions still hold today. It didn't change. The biblical authors are not progressives. Remember, the scriptures were spirit-led, not spirit-written. This is about inerrancy. We should never forget that scripture was written by real people using normal human means of understanding and communication. And as always, context, context, context. That's what this is about, is context. Which brings us to inspiration and inerrancy. The Bible can't be wrong, Joe. Correct. Do you understand what we mean by wrong? This is, again, where I'm going to go over to Dr. Heiser, because, boy, does he handle this well. This is definitions of inerrancy. I'm not going to read them all. Some of them are lengthy. But this is him writing it, and he's using other people like Wayne Grudman, 
The inerrancy of scripture means that scripture in the original manuscripts does not affirm anything that is contrary to fact. This is from his An Introduction to Bible Doctrine, page 90. And there's a long definition here for by Robert Raymer. Uh, Millard Erickson from Christian Theology says, The Bible, when correctly interpreted in light of the level to which culture and means of communication had developed at the time it was written, and in view of the purpose purposes for which it was written is fully truthful in all that it affirms. This is in page 233 and 234. I like that definition. That's mine of inerrancy. The Bible, when you've correctly interpreted it in the context of the level to which the culture of the, you know, culture and means of communication at that time that it was written and, and for the purpose that it's being written, that's what we mean by inerrancy. Well, Genesis, uh-uh, stop. Genesis was not written to tell you how the scientific creation of the world happened. So don't tell me the Bible's wrong. That is not what Genesis was written for. Genesis was written to tell you one God, Yahweh. He created everything ex nihilo, out of nothing. And all of creation answers to him at his command. And he created effortlessly by speaking. Genesis is about teaching you that you have a transcendent, one transcendent creator. That's what Genesis is about. And in that context, the Bible is not fallible. It's right on target. When we read the Bible and try to make it say something it wasn't trying to say, that's when you find mistakes in it. This is what inerrancy is about. And if people don't understand this concept, they will create dogma that will not only lead them and their followers astray, but it opens the scriptures and the faith and, and God and his word to attack by scoffers. This is another reason that I wish if you're going to teach the people of Yahweh, you'd better be studying with all your might so that you don't teach wrong. And you'd better be humble, brothers and sisters. Teachable so that the spirit can guide you because a lot of folks out there teach the flock wrong. And man, if little bunny foo-foo and me wants to smack them on their heads, this is another one from Dr. Heiser. He says, inspiration and inerrancy, distinguishing ends and means process and product. This is a complicated little piece and it's not all that long, but it's, it's deep. And I will let you go through it later if you'd like, but he's talking about how inspiration is a product of a, cooperative work between the Holy Spirit and human beings. And he's charted some of this out and he's got little graphs in here to try, try to help you understand it. It's not like it's a book, but it's one of his more lengthy blog posts. And you can go back through this on your own time where we don't need to do this one right now. Basically what he's trying to tell you is look folks, it was a real human being that wrote that passage that it, Moses or whoever wrote Genesis when we're pretty sure it was Moses. Moses was a real human being. He didn't just uh, go into a trance and dictate the first five books of the Bible. He was writing it using his mind and his world experiences and his command of the language. Okay? A human being. Because Yahweh chose to work through human beings. So you have to read it as the product of a human work where the human is guided not under the con direct control of, he's not a dictograph machine. 
He is guided by the Holy Spirit. So this will help. This is what inerrancy will help you get in your mind. This is the proper understanding of your Bible. Read it in that context. Which brings us to our next little subject here. Essentially, what we've been doing is setting the groundwork for something called hermeneutics, hermeneutical principles. In other words, interpretation of the Bible. What does this different language mean? What is this different cultures, you know, what, what is this Bible written by Hebrews and, and Greek-speaking Hebrews, you know, in the Hebrew and Greek languages and sometimes Aramaic and Chaldean? What the heck are they talking about? How do I translate it into my language? That's what hermeneutics is, the hermeneutic principles. I've uh, got a slideshow for you in your uh, homework. You can go through it. It's only 23 slides. It says a hermeneutics, the science of interpretation. We are all theologians. People cringe at the word theology. They think that theology is for the seminary trained and not for your average Joe. Some here might even think this. However, every Christian is a theologian. Theology comes from the Greek word theos, God, and logos, word. Uh, Logos doesn't necessarily mean word, but we'll argue that some other day. Thus, theology means the study of God's word. God's word, the Bible, informs us on what to believe in practice. Every Christian should be studying their Bible, and every Christian has the idea on what they think it says. Thus, they are all theologians. The difference is whether or not you're a poor theologian or a good one. That's where hermeneutics come in. It says reading, interpreting, and applying. You can go over this. We're not going to spend the whole day on this. It talks about who contributed to the Bible. And it talks about exegesis versus Jesus. you know, how different terp interpretations. And it goes over that. That's a, this is something, you know what, we should talk. Okay, exegesis versus Jesus. The Bible is old and you are new. There's no way we can come to the Bible unbiased. We all approach scripture with a worldview, preconceived ideas, presuppositions, theological persuasions, political stances, personal luggage, and so forth. And that's not always a bad thing. However, when it comes to actually interpreting the scriptures, there's basically two ways of going at it, and the two methods are that of theologians referred to as exegesis and eisegesis. Exegesis versus eisegesis. I'm going to go ex and eis. Ex means to lead out or extract from. Eis means to read into. Ex is exodus. Um, this is our approach to the Bible at Bell's Run. This is who, who put this together. We want to extract from, this is exegesis. We want to extract from the original meaning of the text, understand it in the world in which it was originally penned, and then make the hermeneutical jump over into the 21st century. Eisegesis means to read into. This happens when someone imposes their own personal or cultural beliefs onto the Bible. This can be attempt uh, be an attempt to make the Bible less offensive or more palatable to suit one's way of life and avoid being conformed to the image of Jesus. This can be done in ignorance. It is ultimately undermines the authority of Scripture. This is what the new NIV Bibles do. This is what the message does. This is what the shack does. This is what most of the teachers I'm upset with do. You've got to be very careful with this, folks. Ask yourself a question. Whose word is this actually? Am I out to exegese or eisegese? Am I going to learn from the Bible or am I going to overwrite the Bible? Do my cultural and personal desires trump the authority of Scripture in my life? 
or am I willing to obey, love, and proclaim Scripture regardless of whether I am accepted or rejected? Uh, too many people who claim to be believers choose the world over the Scriptures. The analogy of faith. We're going to go over that. Context is king. We're talking about that all day today. So, Oh, here's one. He says, well, that's just your interpretation. He says, we've all heard it before. Some of us have said it. Others have used it against us. Because eisegesis, that's reading our, our interpretation into the Bible, because it's so prevalent in our culture and thinking, we come to the conclusion that any given passage can have multiple meanings interpretation. This is simply untrue, not true. When the Holy Spirit led men to write the Bible, God had an intended purpose, meaning an application for practical people in a particular setting or particular people in a particular setting. Got a comment on the board. It says, yeah, like Joe says, I tend to uh, like stepping on toes and ruffling feathers. You calm him down and set him down. He's enjoying irking people a little bit too much. That's Aaron, one of our sons of thunder on the, on the, in the classroom. Um, practice makes perfect. Yes. We need to practice our scriptures. And he goes over through a few other passages in your scripture. But this is um, that's a slideshow that's in your homework, and you can go through it yourself. Um, go back and find it later. There's another one in there, too. It's um, learning how to interpret scripture through context. This is all part of our hermeneutics, and we'll go over that in just a minute. Um, here's the other slideshow that I've put for you. And this is like the, the Bible writer example. This is what's special about Hosea and God's in, indictment of sinful Israel or whatever. I'm halfway through this already on here. But this is another slideshow that will help you, you know, like other background elements tells you. This one's actually a lot more in-depth with the, the things you need to look for. And if you're watching the, the chalkboard, you see I'm just flipping through the slides. But this slide here is for those who really need a little help with this. Like, what is the historical cultural context? This is slide 17 of 19. Geographical. Jesus' parables of the good Samaritan. Why is that important? Because he's in Samaria. Normally, a Jew would avoid Samaria, but he doesn't. The geographical location is important. If you don't understand geographical importance in your Bible, you're going to miss a lot of subtle undertones going on in Scripture that the original uh, hearers would have understood immediately. Like in the in this one story of Jesus at the well with a Samaritan woman, it says it's in the shadow or overlooked by the, the bones of Joseph. Holy cow! If you understand what's going on with that one line, that's the same thing as saying, as in the days of Noah. The bones of Joseph brought up an entire story right there at that well. The well itself is important. The fact that he's in Samaria is important. Geography is important in your scriptures. You've got to study to get this stuff in your head. Social, the Greco-Roman code. That's a study here. You know, it's it's in your scriptures. Economical, the slave fortune tellers, you know, in, in Acts 15, 39 through 18, 22. Uh, the political, Paul and Silas prison release, Acts 16, 34, 36 through 40. All of this context you need to be aware of. It says dangers associated with studying the background. The big one here is you focus on the background matters to the neglect of the meaning and application. I've got to watch that one myself. And then they've got some conclusions here. So what I did for you is I found, and I went through them, I found two good slides for you, slide presentations and a couple of articles. 
on how all this works, hermeneutics and studying how you study your Bible. I found several videos. You go back through all of this on your own time. Principles of hermeneutics in a nutshell, how to correctly interpret the Bible. Scripture interprets scripture. It says often scripture interprets itself. In some instances, another biblical writer interprets another biblical passage. Perfect example, the one I like to use all the time when this comes up. Peter's vision declares all food clean. Not what Peter said the vision was about. Peter tells you the vision is that Gentiles are not unclean. He said it was not about food. He said it was about the Gentiles. Yeah, but Jesus declared food clean, all food are easy to eat anyhow. You know, back when he said it's it's not what goes into the mouth, but what, yeah, no, 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 he didn't. That's a scribal in some of your Bibles. It says, and thus Jesus declares all foods, you know, clean. No, he didn't. No, he didn't. That's a scribal note. That's not in the oldest documents. How do we know? Peter, in his vision, when Jesus tells him, you know, kill and eat. Never, Lord. Nothing unclean has ever entered my mouth. This is years after the ascension. If Jesus had declared all foods clean, don't you think Peter would have known that? So why is he saying that something that's been declared clean, why is he calling it unclean still? Remember what I told you about using logic? The logic of that passage in Peter tells you that the biblical clean and unclean laws were never changed. Do with it what you will. But remember, if you're going to pick and choose your scriptures, it tells the person in your mirror just how much you love him. Because it does say in the scriptures, if you love me, keep my teachings, keep my commandments, keep my Torah. Another principle of the hermeneutics, context interprets scripture. The surrounding verses, chapter, book of the Bible, provide immediate context to any Bible verse, as does the historical, cultural, and linguistic context of the verse. Third, intent interprets scripture. All scripture has an intended meaning. It is there. It is therefore true that a scripture has one correct interpretation while it may have many correct applications. The clear, uh, clear interprets the obscure. No verse of scripture should be interpreted to contradict the overall message of the scripture. When we are faced with an obscure verse, you know, hard to understand, we find clear verses to help interpret it. This is especially true when you're dealing with the prophets. All right, we're going to take a pause right here. When we come back, it's going to be the Bible in its context. But let me sum us up for a little bit before we go to our break. It's going to give you a six-minute break, let you take a breather, catch your breath, do whatever. When we come back, we're going to be talking about the biblical context, Greek versus Hebrew thinking, the language and the things that are written. Everything today. It's a deep, thick subject. This is an outline for other courses. Just about everything I've been hitting on today, we could do a one to two hour show on each individual, every one of them. This is why I'm thinking about adding Fridays an extra, an extra class so I can hit on the most important ones. But the big, big takeaway here is if, if you love God and his son, the Messiah, you need to study his word. And that needs to change you, and you need by by applying it in your life. If if you don't, the scoffers say that God sends everybody to hell for inter, you know eternal torture or whatever. They're being ugly about it. They're mocking. They're scoffing. But God never sends a single person to hell. 
We all choose it. He offered us a choice. You choose my way or you choose your way. Here are the, here's the rewards and the penalties. Choose. It says, choose this day which you will follow. As for me and my house, we follow Yahweh. Moses told the people, if you follow Yahweh, it'll go well with you. If you don't, it's like telling you, if you keep the speed limit, when you go speeding by that trooper, you won't get a ticket. If you choose to speed, well, the cop condemned me to a ticket. No, he didn't. You did. Because you sped right by him. Wave the flag in front of the bull. Now you're going to blame the cop. It's just like, hey, Adam, you know, what are you doing eating that? Well, that woman you gave me. Uh-huh. So when the scoffers condemn God for condemning people, again, a fallacy. That's That was straw man. And that was never, and it's in a form of equivocation as well. It's never what was said. Never what was said. The Bible does not ever say that. The Bible says you choose. So you decide. Now me, I'm not trying to stay out of hell. I, I, I've changed my approach. I want to be a worker for his kingdom. I want to be a good Marine. I'm not trying to avoid death. You know, that, that's what, that'll make me a coward. Makes me a bad Marine. I'm trying to be a good, you know, a good soldier in the kingdom. And, and I relate to this as a Marine because it works very well for me. The way I think that my relation, my military relations, it, it You'd be like trying to be a good football player, a good player on a, on a volleyball team. You're trying to help the team. I want to be a good team member on Team Yahweh. I want to work for the kingdom. Now, the reward for doing that is eternal life, but that's not my goal anymore. And if your goal is just to avoid hell, it's the wrong goal. It'll make it harder to live that life. What makes it easier is to change your mindset. I want to be on Team Yahweh. Okay, well, what's what's Team Yahweh all about well i got to read the bible to find out cool you follow team yahweh you're loyal to team yahweh one of the rewards is eternal life but it's also blessings and other things that go better in your life doesn't mean you're not going to have trials and tribulations it's going to be like okay i'm on team yahweh and today we've got to play the big bad boys from from texas you know in the national championship and they've never been beaten in 20 years well this is the first time they've had to play team yahweh let's see what happens got to play the game Got to play it Yahweh's way. Got to stick to his game plan. You know, it's all different ways to relate to this. I'm trying to help you if you need it this way. If you're more advanced than I am, this is a refresher course. No big deal. But I know that almost everybody I encounter these days need this basic foundation laid under them. Even those who have been in their church, their churches their whole lives. When I talk to him in depth, I'm like, holy cow, nobody ever put a foundation under your house. I don't often tell them that. Sometimes I do. Make sure you've got the foundation under your house. And when we come back, let's talk about the biblical context behind your Bible, the, the worldview. What is the Bible's general overall context? And how do we, how do we, how's it formed and how do we study it? And what tools do we have available to us to help us? We'll get to that. We'll see you in six minutes.
and we're back and we're just going to keep on trucking biblical context greek and western versus hebrew thinking the greek view versus the western view um charlie's hebrew teachers kind of questions whether or not this is real or the product of somebody who wrote a book years ago uh and the work i've done yeah they're different this is actually, um, the Hebrew thinking has got a foot in both worlds between Eastern and Western thinking. And we're going to touch on some of this. Um, real quick, um, I got a few slide show, slides I'm going to show you first, but um, I want to take you to, there's a slide presentation in your homework. And I actually want to go through this presentation today. Uh, this is teaching with a biblical worldview. It's 24 slides. This one, every Bible student should be studying. And I'm not going to worry about too much about the objectives here. Worldview definitions. Things we focus on that determine how we interpret life. Remember, I'm unapologetically biblical worldview here in this show. It says it's a vision for and of life, values, significance, guidance, et cetera, et cetera. It's what Jimmy called convictions yesterday. A person's mental concept of the big picture of reality and as shaped by one's assumptions about God, creation, mankind, moral order, and purpose. Where does a worldview come from? It says our experiences, cultural, family, peers, et cetera, et cetera. Authoritative texts, things that we read that we accept. Self-interest and self-justification. That self-interest and self-justification can get you in trouble. Questions that frame a worldview. What is real? What is reality? What is the universe like? What is humanity? What is a, a what what things are of value? What is good? What is beauty? What is true? What is our purpose? The answers to these questions help us form our worldview. Here's Greek versus Hebrew. Greek, life is sacred and secular. Hebrew, life is sacred. There is no secular to a Hebrew. So when I ever, when I'm saying secular, I I slip into that Greek Western mindset. That's the world I grew up in but I'm learning more and more to put quotation marks around secular. Greek view, Mother Earth, nature as God. The Hebrew, God is creator and is separate from creation. The Greek, man is the measure of all things. Hebrew, truth is determined by God. God's word is the measure of all things. Greek, know thyself. Hebrew, know God. I know that one very well from reading the, the Greek philosophers. Um, Greek, manual labor is vulgar. Hebrew, trades are honored. All rabbis learn a trade. Manual labor is, is a service to God, to Yahweh. The Greek, education is for knowledge. The Hebrew, education is for wisdom and character building. Wisdom is how you use that knowledge. Charlie, this is why I tell you there are very real differences. Your teacher needs to readdress this issue. Yeah, I, I, I don't disagree with you. <laughs> no, I'm not saying you did. <laughs> Radical cosmological dualism. Basic worldviews, cynical view of history. It repeats itself. History is something to escape, not change. This is Hinduism. Linear, non-progressive world will always be the same. Linear, progressive, secular. The world is evolving and improving by natural selection and human effort. That's progressivism right there. Um, well, she's also the slide also says linear, progressive, biblical. God is working in history to restore his original purposes. This is a different view of progressivism. This is actual progressive, not a perversion of the word. This means this is the biblical world uh, view of time. Time is, is moving in a constant beat toward a goal, toward a purpose. 
and in the linear progressive secular view, that's the progressive as in Woodrow freaking Wilson. This is that the world evolves and man can perfect himself. Basic worldviews relating to God. How do they relate to God and purpose? Atheism. No God. Everything is random chance. Life has no meaning. That is an irrational worldview, folks. And if you're an atheist, I can prove it to you nine times, nine, ten, twenty times to Sunday. If you'll conform to logic, most atheists don't. Monotheism. One God. God equals the creator and sovereign. Man has free will. God rewards those that seek him. Pantheism. God is in all man and creation is evolving into higher levels of being. That's also paganism. World religions and worldviews. Atheism. Evolution. In, they believe in evolution and humanism. That's their worldview. Monotheism. Islam, Judaism, and Christianity. In this case, Islam is a perversion of the Bible, uh, of scriptural teachings. Pantheism. That's Hinduism, Buddhism, New Age, paganism, etc., etc. The heart of a Christian worldview. Creation, Genesis 1 and 2, the foundations of the biblical worldview, the world as God intended. It is a theological explanation, not a physical. The fall, Genesis 3 through Revelations 20, the fall of man is real, serious consequences of sin. Redemption, Genesis 30 through Revelation 20, the world is transformed by redemption. What God has done is doing to, in what he is doing to make things right again. Then there's reconciliation, Revelation 21 through 22. We are awaiting this. God will bring and restore all things. Biblical versus non-biblical worldview. The creation equals order, purpose, image of God, value of life. Non-biblical, evolution equals random chance, survival of the fittest. The Bible, the fall, that's God's image and man is marred. He needs a redeemer. The non-biblical worldview, man is basically good and can earn eternity by acts of goodness or he can perfect himself. Redemption from the Bible's perspective, God's revelation of himself in Christ and scriptures. From the non-biblical view, there are many sources of truth. Truth is evolving. From the Bible's perspective, reconciliation is coming from God. From the worldview, mankind is better and better and better, perfecting himself, man as God. This is influences a biblical worldview on Western society. Representative government, Appeals courts, protection of property, education, wealth can be created and earned, care for the poor, king is under the law, all are equal, requirement of a witness and evidence in court, laws of warfare, public health, and respect for the poor. All of that came from the biblical worldview. Christian, Christian worldview versus modern and postmodern. From the Christian, truth is revelation. Modern, it's reason. The postmodern says there's no truth. The biggest sin, Christians say it's independence from God. The modernist says it's ignorance. The postmodernist says it's intolerance. Ethics, for the Christian, it's moral authority. For the modernist, it's individual choice. For the postmodernist, it's general acceptance. OMG, can you see all three of those in our world today? And it usually is generational. This thing here, Christian, that's boomers and Gen X. That modernist, that's your millennials and your Gen Zs. Your postmodernists, that's the current generations now. Biblical worldview resources. Creation, Genesis 1 through 2. Creation, this is just resources for you to go do the studying here. Um, and this is a bibliography.
So basically, that's what we wanted to do with this one. I wanted to go through that for you because it's important that we understand what we're talking about. I also threw a few slides together to help talking points here. The geography of thought. Western thinking, Greek, we think in terms of categories. Eastern thinking, now this isn't biblical worldviews per se, this is to the east of that. Think China, Asian. Context is everything. The Bible is in a, it's Middle Eastern, right? That's right on, there's a reason that Jerusalem is where it's at. It's in the middle of both types of thinking. Remember when I said geography can help us understand? Why do you think Yahweh would have put the Holy Land right in the middle between the two worlds? Because maybe the way we should think is somewhere in the middle? Well, the Hebrew does have categories. They have classified clean and unclean and, you know, Kadesh and not, not clean, you know, all these things, holy, not holy. It's got categories, but it also thinks of context. It's in the middle. So the Western is categories. Eastern is context. Biblical is going to be somewhere in the middle. Western, all about rules. Eastern, it's all about relationships. Well, if you think, well, the Eastern, that's the Bible. Relationships. Relationships are important in the Bible, but so is the Torah. Okay, see, again, the biblical worldview is in the middle. That's why I chose this slide. This slide has nothing to do with, this comes from a slideshow that's got nothing to do with the Bible. Western thinking, liberty and personal agency versus Eastern, harmony, collective agency. Western, investigation, theory, and debate. Eastern, common sense, golden mean, you know, the do unto others. Western, find truth. Eastern, finding Tao, the way to live, you know, the way. Well, truth is Torah. The way truth teaches you the way to live. The Bible, once again, is in the middle. Western, logic, decontextualize everything. Eastern, dialectic, context changes. That language right there is thoroughly Marxian. Western, focus, the focus of the Western world, static, objective, and syntax. The focus of the Eastern world, context, topic, and relation. Western, one many, individualism. Eastern, part, whole, collectivism. Western, right, wrong, either or. Eastern, both and. That last one's important. You find that both and in biblical thinking, which Charlie brings us to our favorite scripture word when we're studying, and. Well, that's where that both and thinking in your Bible comes from because it's Middle Eastern. So it's adopted some of that thinking. If you don't understand this and you study your Bible strictly from a Western point of view, you are going to Jesus. You're going to read your understanding in on top of the Bible. Ipso facto, you've made a boo-boo. Totally innocent. You didn't mean to, but you did. So this is why we've got to study some of the context here. You've seen this one before. Greek thinking. The Greek thinking, feel, think, choose, act. First thing you do, convince me emotionally. That's why the, you know, the progressive, they drink out, you know, little Sally Duncan, muck and fudge here. She's missing her arm and her leg and the Republicans made us do this. So the second thing we do, prove it, you know, to my own logical mind and, and until I'm satisfied. Well, see, I see Sally muck and fudge and, you know, Mr. Democrat says it was the Republicans. So he's just proven to me, to my own mind, that she's crippled because, I mean, she might have been born that way because mom smoked and did crack, but it's a Republican's fault, right? 
And I and and the reason I'm using the Democrats for this example is because the Republicans don't do this this uh, that often. And when you do, what you have is a is a rhino. And third, after I'm convinced to my own satisfaction, then I'll try to do something as long as it continues to feel good. Well, what feels good? Well, making somebody else pay for Sally Buck and Fudge. This is Greek thinking, Hebrew thinking. First, I hear God's word and I make willful choices to believe it. So God tells me bad things happen because of the fall. This is the effects of sin and corruption in the world. So I have to believe that that's why this poor little girl was born the way she was. Second thing I do, choose to learn his commands and I begin to do them. Well, God tells me she needs help and I have the means to help her. So third, as I practice obeying God, then he opens up my understanding and makes it make sense. So I understand I got to help her. I help her. I send money to her family or I go help do whatever she needs help doing. And fourth, I enjoy God's blessing and feel good about it. Now I know I'm doing God's will. That's the Greek versus Hebrew thinking. They are different. And they are real. Greek versus Hebrew hope. The Greek idea of hope. I yearn for it deeply. I desire for it greatly. I wish for it intensely. I pray for it. Therefore, I am said to hope regardless of whether or not my behavior actually changes. The Hebrew idea of hope says in the Hebrew to hope means to act in expectation of promised or desired results. Meaning God promised it. So I believe it. I'm just going to act like he's going to deliver for the Hebrew. It's impossible to hope without obeying what Yahweh has said, because you are acting in expectation of receiving what he promised and preparing accordingly. Well, remember it said, if you do these things. But that's works-based. No, that's faith-based. But, but, but you I have faith that if I. You don't get the blessing I, unless you do it. Uh, yeah, but I have faith that if I live according to his teachings, he will deliver. See, it's faith is the motivation. It's the reason why I'm obeying. So, so works is the fruit of our faith. Oh, somebody said that. Yes. Here's another one that's important. Hebrew perspective versus the Greek perspective on things such as what is the soul. In the Hebrew, it's the life force that Yahweh breathed into living creatures, the power of God that makes one alive. In the Greek, it's a spirit body trapped in a physical body. The soul contains one's intellect and persona. Charlie, you're going to find out your Mormonist faith with very Greek in, in thinking, very Gnostic. The origin of souls. To the Hebrew, Yahweh is the source of life. He possesses life and gives it to whom he wishes. To the Greek, souls are immortal and eternal. Souls pre-exist the body. Yeah, Charlie's over there chuckling. I knew he was going to get this. The property of a soul. To the Hebrew, souls are living people subject to death due to the penalty of sin. To the Greek, souls are immortal spirits. They cannot die or be destroyed. What happens at death? To the Hebrew, when we die, we cease to be living souls. To the Greek, when we die, our souls separate from our bodies. Where do souls go? To the Hebrew, Sheol, the grave. In Sheol, all consciousness activity ceases. To the Greek, Hades, another world of the dead. Spirits continue to live and retain full consciousness. What is the future of mankind? To the Hebrew, The dead will be resurrected to stand judgment before Yahweh. 
God will judge mankind according to what he has done. Ooh, works. The righteous will be redeemed from death and receive eternal life. The wicked will return to Sheol as a second death. They will never again be resurrected. Who are the righteous? Those who obey. Greek perspective. Disembodied souls live in Hades. Bad people are tormented and punished for what they did in life. Good people receive a favorable afterlife. Hmm. Very different, huh? Charlie, you want to help explain this one? To the Hebrew mind, this is how you are made up. You have a physical body. Is that Basar? I'm waiting on you. Okay. Then you have a soul, a nefesh. Then you have a spirit, a ruach. If you live, that, then the conflict is between your, your nephesh and flesh and your ruach, your nephesh and your ruach. Your nephesh is basically your mind. Are you going to choose to live as an animal, fleshly? Are you going to choose to live spiritually as born from above? you got to be born again. You're born flesh. But if you want to live in, in the spirit, you got to choose that. That's what it means to be reborn. Now, to the Hebrew mindset, that's all in one. And interestingly enough, Charlie, is that triune? <laughs> yes, it is. And it's all one, right? Yes, it is. And the Hebrew does not believe that there's separate entities that can, when you lose one, you've lost the whole. Yes, true. Gee, you think that might help us with our other study? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, folks. I didn't mean to do that to you, but Charlie and I got something else we've been going on in the background that we've been studying. And that, that picture just dawned on me. That's, that's an answer to some of the questions we've had. See, see, you got to keep studying because Yahweh's spirit will put things in front of you that'll help you. Now we're going to be looking at the, the ancient worldview of the, of the Hebrew. They tend to look at the world this way. This is not entirely, I mean, this is how the Hebrew sees it, but the Greek sees it similarly, just a little different. Sheol for the Hebrew is just the ground. Sheol for the Greek, for the, for the Western, you know, paganist, that's where you go to live after, you've, after you're dead. This is a little bit easier view to understand. All the pillars of the earth. That's the, the mountains that hold up the, the flat earth in the uh, primordial abyss, the oceans the chaos ocean, but that is also a reference to all the things that make the world work. And then you have the firmament, which is the, the bronze dome over the, you know, the firmament of the sky. And then they got the bronze dome over it and the moon and the stars are actually in the dome. You got waters above and you got floodgates for making the rain and all this stuff. This is kind of how they, now people will see, well, see Joe, the Bible's wrong. No, 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 no. Remember what we did with inerrant in as much as it's used according to what the people at the time understood. This worldview is not so much about the physical property, the scientific explanation of the world as we see it today. That worldview is about function. What? Yeah, that worldview right there is about function, not description. That worldview right there is more action oriented. What does it do? The columns of the earth hold up the earth where everybody lives. The ocean, that's where the chaos is. Shoal, that's where the dead go. 
the the dome above us keeps the water above us from drowning us out. There are floodgates so that we can have rain. The firmament of the sky gives us the sun, the, the air we need to breathe. The moon and the stars are for light at night and times and seasons. The sun gives us life. That's all function. To the extent that this is the worldview of the Hebrew mindset, this works perfectly with scripture and with the Hebrew language. Ooh, language. Yeah, we're going to get to all of that. I have a um, another slideshow. I want to do another, not slideshow. Um, well, let me just show you this real quick. When I was showing you the, the Hebrew worldview, there's the slide from right here's your homework assignment. This is the road to concord.com. This blinking thing here on the, if you can see your screen, that's the slideshow I did. This right here, cultural context of the biblical worldview. That's an intro to what seems to be a very good YouTube presentation. This is not Dr. Heiser. This video is only two and a half, three minutes long. Pretty much says the exact same thing we're saying here. Um, if the rest of it is as good as the intro, which I have not had a chance to look at, I just put this video up there. But if they continue on as good as this, oh, this is going to be a good video series for people who are looking for more on this subject. This book right here is Dr. Heiser, The Unseen Realm. Outside of your Bible, this is probably the most important book you can read outside of your Bible. Charlie, uh, would, would you think maybe that's a good, you know, am I estimating the value of this book properly in your opinion? Yeah, that, that. This will stick with, you back in the mindset of an ancient Hebrew. Yes. With, without the understanding of, of this kind of thing, you do not understand your Bible. Yes. What this book will do is pretty much, hey, spirit world's real, hammer knocker. Get yourself back into that. You know, you've, you've been too, too Greekized. You, you think, oh, yeah, the spirit's world, but to you, it's just an intellectual point of view. Heiser will tell you to, to, the, to the Hebrew, very, very real, as real as the sun, as real as the earth underneath your feet. And he will, he will show it to you in your Bible. And he'll help you recapture part of the worldview that we've lost. Now, if you really want to do this, um, Right there, that's the Unseen Realm documentary. It's about an hour and a half, two hours long. There's lots of video and lots of lecturing by Dr. Heiser on this worldview. And trust me, he will get into the weeds of the Hebrew and he will show it to you in your Bible. It's there. So this is a good thing to help you recapture the, the Hebrew mindset that a lot of us have lost. Does the Bible say the earth is flat? The Bible suggests it several different ways. It doesn't say the earth is flat necessarily because it also says that Yahweh hung the earth on nothing. Well, it talks about the pillars of the earth, which is going to talk about a flat earth with the mountains holding it up. But when he also says he, Yahweh hung the earth on nothing, it, it, that's not pillar language. So, Clay, in this case, it depends on the context of what the message is being taught. It, it, a lot of times, it, I can talk to you and make a biblical theological message using Star Wars. And we all know the story of Star Wars. I'm not affirming Star Wars. It's a fictional story. We all know that. But I can make a true biblical, you know, I can teach a sermon using nothing but Star Wars. And I will be true to the Bible using Star Wars. So if the Bible uses that idea that the earth is flat and held up by pillars to, to teach a theological message, that's what inerrancy means. It means the purpose of the scripture is true. 
not whether or not the physical world is that way, but the scriptures also tell you that the, the world was hung on nothing. That that's more like, that's more space language cosmology thinking. So I have no idea. Um, yes, clay, it says it has four corners, but that's North, South, East, and West. That's what it means by the four corners. It's a the idiom. We're going to get to that in a minute, a minute. It's a figure of speech and we've got to be careful with that. And we will get to those in just a minute. Um, figures of speech can get us in trouble. Um, something else, when you're looking at the Hebrew mindset, you have to understand how important this is. The Hebrew feast cycle in the Gospel of John, th this is important because the whole Hebrew world is going to revolve around these feasts religiously, but it also revolves around them in other ways. And that's because the ancient Hebrew culture, I've got several really good pages linked for you in your homework but this this one here is kind of like an overview of of the more detailed ones and it says the ancient hebrews often lived as nomads in the wilderness much like the bedouins of of near middle east today and i've met the bedouins holy cow they look just like that picture right there with their tents and camels they have not changed jack and they just pick up and move whenever they need to that it was a time warp here I am in a modern combat tank sitting next to a guy with camels and a Bedouin tent. I mean, you, it was a culture clash. They're used to it. They don't think nothing of it. They, they, they just look at us like we're aliens, but to me, whoo. So their lifestyle revolved around their herd and their flocks, which required constant movement in search of green pastures. Many people mentioned in the Bible lived this nomadic lifestyle, including Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, and David. Here we will look at the various aspects of the ancient culture. So as the Hebrew language is closely related to this lifestyle, we will also show the connections between their words and culture often missed because of a lack of cultural understanding. So let me just bump this out of here for now. And I'm going to ask Charlie to chime in here for a minute real quick. This time we're going to put him in the show because I want to discuss something that he's, he's our Hebrew scholar. And he tells you this all the time. Lots of wordplay in the Hebrew language, isn't there? Charlie? All over the place. And it's lost in translation to English, isn't it? A lot of it. Most times, yes. Most times. Things like when we're talking about Adam, there's wordplay there, isn't there? Oh, yeah. Several several different ways. It's different yeah. levels because yeah. Adam or Adam, it, it's the man, but it also means earth, doesn't it? Yes. And it'll carry with it the connotation of red earth, red clay. Yes. So like a color. Um, so all of this, Charlie, is there anything you want to just how the language shapes their culture and thinking that you can think of right off the top of your head. Cause I know I'm catching you cold here. Well, but. Yeah. I mean, you got, you've got to understand how they put things together because their language is not linear. Like our language is you will see. And we've talked about this in some of our other shows where we've talked about the, um, uh, chiasms and bifids and things like that. Parallelism. Parallelism. These things are used all the time everywhere throughout the scriptures and if you're not cognizant of that you can get off the rails and not understanding something because a lot of times they'll be talking about something and then they'll repeat it again a different way and you might think oh well they're they change the subject but no it, it's the same thing just just rephrased in another way and a lot of things also that we have to keep in mind is a lot of times the scriptures were written in these 
these ways so that people could memorize them more yes. easily. That's why uh, the repetition in the Hebrew was, rhyme, was the Hebrew equivalent of rhyming. And, and uh, with different things like Psalms 119, each of the stanzas begins with a, a different Hebrew letter and, you know, different techniques like that that are used. Because back then, a lot of people did not even know how to read, but they could learn and memorize these things, you know, from the, the yeah, oral traditions and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. So a lot of this stuff is, and that, and the scriptures also have a lot of, what, what's that? There's a term for it when you like spell out a word and then each verse starts with that letter of the word or whatever. Oh yeah. 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 That, that's very common. Yeah. And then like certain passages in Genesis, <clears throat> certain sections and names, the names of the people yes. spell out the gospel. Oh yeah. Yeah. You know, all, the, all the kingdom, all those this stuff, the language the is very dense, very, and it's nested. And by nested, I mean, it's like a Russian nesting doll. It There's is. one thing inside another, inside another, inside another, and they're all connected. And, and that's the reason I think. And this is a sophistic sophistication. I think that's the reason why there's so much wordplay too, because the wordplay also helps you to remember because, oh yeah, that word's used here because it reflects back on this. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's, it's very integrated uh, at so many different levels. But at the same time, it's simple <clears throat> and easy. Oh, it is. Yes. Yes. So he studied, he's, how long have you been studying this now? Four years? Yeah. Over four years. Over four years. And he's still learning to read it. Uh, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm still like a first grader. I mean, <laughs> I mean and he takes this, classes, folks. This is hard. So it's not like he's just kind of trying to study it. He, he reads it better than he gives credit for, but right. you know, takes credit for it but he does I, I have a drill sergeant for a teacher i call her that too on occasion <laughs> all right thanks charlie i'm gonna get back to where um for instance folks i've got one of the pages i want to show you that i have to help you with this this is from the ancient hebrew research center excellent web page excellent um but it's going to talk about the culture of the hebrew language and how language shapes culture this is part of what's going on at the tower of babel and it's going to just goes over how the language works. The fact that interpreting the Bible through the Hebrew culture is important, but also about how the, the language is very uh, agricultural um, because of their culture, because they're nomadic and, and um, you know, agricultural as well. They do grow crops and things. So a lot of what your Bible is going to use is figures of speech that are connected to these things. So back to our slideshow here, the Hebrew language, something else that I wanted to point out. Hebrew is verb-oriented, which means it's action-focused. What do you do with it? Like I've, I've um, one of your classmates, Ray, he points out in, in the Greek, I'll explain, you know, let me move this so you can see me here real quick. Say, so what is this? Well, it's a pencil. We'll explain it. Well, you know, it's uh, about eight inches long and it's yellow and this one's made out of plastic and metal and it's got graphite. And, we'll, and a Hebrew would go, well, what is this? And he says, I write with it. And that's, this is very rudimentary and it's simplified, but that's how a Hebrew would, I write with it. Well, explain it. Well, I write with it. So anything I write with can become a pencil to them, a stick in the dirt. Okay. It, it, it's, it's picture oriented in a lot of ways, type of thinking, kind of, kind of trying to explain this, but that's how the Hebrew language works. Well, how your language works affects how you act and, and how you think and how you relate to the world. Your language has a lot to do with that.
That's why Yahweh confused the language at Babel so that they couldn't cooperate as easy. They all think differently. It, it's kind of like you see this every day, all the time. Okay, in the America, left versus right, you know, liberal versus conservative, progressive versus conservative. We think differently. We use the same, and we're using the same language, and we think differently, and we can't communicate. Now, what happens if you're using the same? Well, you know, one guy's got one language and one's got another. So these create problems. And it's also going to create problems here. The Greek language, it's got its own unique ways of doing things. Greek is noun-oriented, so it's subject-focused, which is going to create trouble when you translate from Hebrew into Greek or from Hebrew into Greek and then into English, et cetera, et cetera. Now, this is part of what I told Clay Toller on the board we were going to get to here in a little bit. Study of figurative language in the Bible. I've got a series of memes I'm going to show you, just pictures. And each one of these is a class in and of itself. And we need to do some of this in the future. But for now, when you're studying your Bible, we've mentioned all of this stuff, and, and I'm expecting you to connect some of the dots for yourself. And that that's, I apologize, that's a mistake sometimes. But I, I'm hypersensitive of always talking down to people. I don't want to be perceived that way because it's one of the things, it's one of the biggest criticisms I've always heard in my life is I talk down to people. In my mind, I'm not talking down to anybody. In my mind, you're keeping up with me because you're just as, you know, you know just as much as I do. I, I've always just treated people like you're your own version of me. When people do that. We all do that. We all just assume everybody else is alike. And we know better, but we don't. Familiarity breeds contempt, right? So I don't like, I don't want to ever be accused of talking down to anybody. So I don't always connect dots when I should. My fault. I apologize for that. I shouldn't be doing it because it does cause trouble when I'm supposed to be teaching. That's my job is to connect the dots when I'm supposed to be teaching. So let me just get real simple with this one. Hebrew in the Bible. We wrote. Hold on, guys. Hey, we're we back. Got, yeah. We got internet issues again. We've got internet issues. I got the best that we can afford around here. I don't understand it. Anyhow, Hebrew idioms in the Bible. These are figures of speech. These are, um, and at the end of your show notes, I have, um, I have a page up that'll help you with this. Let me show you real quick. Let's blow this up a bit. You're going to find this in your Bible all, all over the place. These are just different types of figures of speech and what they mean. It says the face has fallen. It means he's sad. Found grace in your eyes. Accepted. Ooh. There's that grace, Charlie. Um, a seed means descendants. Possesses the gates. Captures the cities. Said in his heart. Thought to himself. The way of women. That's menstruation. Lift up your head. Restore to honor. Loins. That's descendants again. Flowing with milk and honey. Fertile. Mighty hand. That's a force. Open the womb. Be born. Sweet water. Water fit to drink. His anger burned. He was very angry, long of anger, slow to get angry. He's patient. Her sickness. This is talking again about menstruation. Soul, a person, house of bondage, land of slavery, which in the prophetic language is Egypt. Heart lifted up. He's proud. Closed hand means you're selfish. Heart melted. You lose courage. Beginning of his strength, his firstborn. Squat outside means to defecate. And they're giving you all examples of where you're going to find this sound. 
stuff. Um, the scripture even has some rather vulgar language in there too. If you're looking for it, you'll find, um, excuse the phrase, but it's in the Bible. He who pisseth against the wall means a man. Um, so they're no different than we are. They've got all these figures of speech in your Bible. You've got to go learn them. Cause if you read a figure of speech, literally you're going to get in trouble. Okay. Um, I could say like, you know, she's cool. Okay. So what does that mean? I guess she's dead cause she's cool. Right. So I'm going to read the Bible. And I'm going to say, we're all going to go hang out with, you know, so-and-so because she's cool. Well, look, these people, you know, they, they hung out with dead folks. It's a, it's a rough explanation folks, but this is how you get into trouble reading something like that. It's not, it, it's an idiom. It's a figure of speech. It means, you know, she's fun to be around. So we're all going to go hang out with somebody who's fun to be around. doesn't mean she's dead or that she's got low body temperature. We all know these things. Um, it, like in this, when I was growing up, the bomb was, you know, like you're, you're somebody big, you're, you know, you're the bomb, you know, you're a cool person to be around, fun to be around, you know, you're exciting. You might get yourself a strike on YouTube for that today. <laughs> yes, exactly. This slang language, right? Clay Taylor. Yes. Uh, Tolar, excuse me. Um, but in the middle East, if I say you're the bomb now, I've started an argument. I said, no, I'm not the bomb today. You're the bomb today. Yeah. Et cetera, et cetera. So we've got to learn these things. They're in the Bible. We've got to learn them. Uh, parallelism in scripture. Parallelism comes in many different forms in scripture. I can say two different lines and they mean the same thing. I can say two different lines. They're opposites of each other. Parallelism could be one line right after another. Parallelism could be a sentence of, of lines. It could be, I could say it here and five lines later, or four lines later, you see it again. It, it, and a lot of times we have broken up the scriptures when we're translating them into these lines. Now, the people who translated it, it might be one sentence in the original, but we've translated it into two to make it parallel because that shows you that the interpreter has recognized that's parallelism. So he's using he's using the recognition of parallelism to break up, you know, either into two sentences or two two um, clauses within a sentence. So parallelisms in your Bible, you got to pay attention to that, and it, it's not just in in the individual book. There's parallelism between Genesis and, and Revelation. The books, the book of Genesis parallels the book of Revelation. They do, and what's really cool is those are the bookends of the Bible. And they're parallel to each other. So by you that that requires some study. We we should do a class just on parallelism. Then how does the Bible use symbolism? Well, it's not just there's many different forms of symbolism in the Bible, too. It's not just one form. This is another class right here staring us in the face. Whole class. What is biblical typology? That's a form of symbolism, typology. Moses was a typology of the Messiah. King David is a typology of the Messiah. Moses being a prophet. Messiah is the capstone of the prophets. Of the prophets. David is the king. Messiah is going to be the king of kings. So there's typologies. Uh, Joshua is a typology. The Exodus is a typology. Um, it's all symbolic. So you've got to learn to look for this in the scriptures all, a lot. It's, it's that right there is in the scriptures a lot. But so is allegory, symbolism in the Bible allegory stories meant to teach a lesson or teach uh, a concept or an idea um the idea of um it, okay 
Christ is the bread of life. That's a metaphor. That's in the Bible as well, biblical metaphors. Uh, what I'm trying to think of an allegory. Oh, most of the parables are allegories. It's, it, but you got to learn what these things are and you got to learn how to recognize them and what they mean and how they work and how they, how they help you put the Bible in its proper overall context as you study it. And then like the one slide we were saying, ultimately, when you've studied it and you've learned it, how does it apply to your life today? In this sense, the greatest context Torah, the teachings of Yahweh, the creator of the universe, his teachings, his ways. Torah is a Hebrew wisdom book. Because it was like, no, Torah is just the rule book, Joe. See, that's Greek thinking. That's Greek. That's not Hebrew. What do you mean? The Jews are very the Jews have gotten very legalistic. That's that's Hellenistic Greek thinking. The Torah tells me that I'm not supposed to work on the Sabbath, unless, of course, my neighbor's ass has fallen in the ditch. Or somebody's trying to come and kill me, in which case I've got to go help him get the donkey out of the ditch, or I've got to jump up and go kill him first. Which is why it was not against the law for Jesus to heal on the Sabbath. We'll say, all, all sins are equal. That's Greek thinking, folks. There's weight to the sins in the Bible. There's weight to the law. There are heavier, weightier matters of the law. That's in your Bible. That, that's an idiom. Weightier matters of the law it means which which sins are above others. Doesn't Jesus acknowledge that there are certain things above others? Yes, he does. He says the highest one is Yahweh above all else. Honor and worship him first. Love him with all your heart. And love is a Hebrew, it's a verb. It's something you do. Oh my gosh, Charlie, that's more works. Something you got to do. But I thought it was fate. Well, faith is a verb. It's a Hebrew thing that you, oh, Charlie, faith is a do in the Hebrew mind. You trust. It's a work. If you want to look at it, you see, this is, the more you learn to think like a Hebrew, the more the scriptures will make sense. And what you understand is that it's a wisdom book. Remember, the Greek just wants to know. They just want knowledge. The Hebrew wants to know how does that knowledge make me wise? Meaning, how do I learn how to use it? What do I do with it? The Greek just wants to know all it can about the tool. Knowledge is just a tool. The Hebrew wants to know how to use that tool properly to please God, the creator, Yahweh. This is the difference, and it is very real. And it's in your scriptures. And this is what we're learning to study, because this brings this book to life. There is nothing new in our world today that was not covered by this Bible. Nothing. Well, Joe, railguns, they didn't have railguns. No, they had longbows. Well, those aren't the same. They are in their world. A railgun's just an advanced piece of technology that lets me shoot things at a distance. A longbow in their culture and time was just an advanced piece of technology that let me shoot things at a distance. Concept. There is no different concepts today than there were back then. None. Science has not changed that. Technology has not changed that. We have not advanced beyond this. This is a wisdom book. But it's a wisdom book given to man by the creator. 
well, how do you know, Joe? That's just, no, you can test this one. Y'all have any idea how many prophecies this book contains about the Messiah? Depending on how you count them, it's well north of 386. Of the 386 known prophecies about the Messiah, two-thirds of them he had absolutely no control over. He fulfilled every one of them. This is recorded inside and outside of the Bible by non-biblical sources have, have recorded a lot of this as well. Do you know what that's called? That is beyond the statistical chance of zero. Because So there, therefore, by definition, how many of you have learned what that means in logic terms? When I say by definition, that's as strong as I can get. By definition, this book proved, mathematically proved, that Yeshua, HaMessiah, HaMashiach, the Messiah, Jesus the Messiah, is exactly what this book predicted. He, he is exactly what and who this book predicted. That's proof, folks. That can be proven. And that's a proof. This Bible said that 25, 3,500 years ago, said that the nation of Israel would be destroyed and then resurrected as a physical nation. The only time in the history of the world that this has happened, physical nation, same people, same culture, same language, same religion, the same nation. It's the only time that has ever happened in human history. The Bible can be tested on its terms. If you test what it says is true, you'll prove it every time. And by the way, both of those things I gave you examples, well, you can't scientifically test them. Yeah, I just did. By definition, those are scientific proofs. A mathematical proof is a scientific proof. Somebody telling me that the same nation will be destroyed and then resurrected again in future time, I can, as both an archaeologist, an anthropologist, and a sociologist, and a linguist, study whether or not that happened. And it did. I can mathematically, scientifically, I can test the Bible. You cannot do that with any other religion in the world. This is what it claims to be. Well, if this is what it claims to be, and I can test it, and I can prove it, don't you think I ought to study it? Because it claims to be truth with a capital T. Maybe I should study it. And notice, it comes from a world that sits on the crossroads between Egypt and Babylon. Egypt is Greek in thinking. I don't know if you realize that or not. <laughs> it's, it's, it's also worldly. Babylon is in, it's in the east. It's eastern in thinking. I know it's in the Middle East, but it's it's as far east as you can go without being in the east east. Egypt is as far west you can go without being in the west west. And Israel sits right in the middle. And Babylon is spiritual captivity. Egypt is physical captivity. All of this imagery, all of this is right here. And the Holy Land sits right in the middle between the eastern and the western worlds to tell us it's all relationship and it's all in the middle. And this is how we're supposed to live our life. It's a book on tells us how to live a righteous life, an orderly, lawful life that pleases the creator. Don't you think, if we can prove that, that that's true, if you seek truth, don't you think you should study it and start living according to its teachings? And if you do not seek truth, 
Don't complain if you end up in Sheol or hell or Hades or whatever. Don't complain at all because you chose it. He didn't send you there. You chose to go. He warned you. Repeatedly. Sent people to warn you. Made the world such that you could figure it out on your own if you tried. Unless there's questions on the board, that pretty much wraps up the lesson for today. Tomorrow, we're going to be talking about the um, origins of the Celts or Celts, however you want to pronounce it. It's going to take us back to the Bible again. Friday, I'm thinking right now at the moment, unless something else comes up, I'm just, I need a free day. We're just going to yuck, yuck. I might break my fast and give Charlie some money and have him bring donuts Friday. Ping me off the walls. If we do, I will explain to you how I see human history and timelines. Um, it'll be a little bit like my class when we were talking about um, dimensions. And I might even bring that up again a little bit. Um, it's probably what we'll do on Friday. Manic Monday is Manic Monday. If you like what we're doing, folks, please share the shows. Send direct links to people. Explain me however you want. You know that I'm rough to handle at first. And, and you may never like me, like me. You get used to me. We know that. We get a hold of it. But it's about what we bring you. It's the content. And I know a lot of people have told me if, you know, you bring the best content if you're the worst deliverer. Some of what I bring you cannot be delivered kindly. So for what we're doing here, better or worse, I probably am one of the, probably do have a personality for what we're covering. So not everybody, this is not going to be a cup of tea for everybody. They're not going to like it. I got that. But the show builds on itself. Make sure folks, if you send them here, if you ask them to watch, make sure they understand it builds on itself. You need today to understand tomorrow. You need last week to understand this week. You need last month to understand this month, et cetera, et cetera. And we should all go from there. Clay Tolar. So would the story of Adam and Eve in the garden eating the forbidden fruit be the same as people having all the knowledge given to them in the palm of their hands? think it's evil in a sense yes yes remember it was the fruit the fruit was the knowledge of good and evil though um people think that it was the tree of knowledge and they forget to keep reading it was the knowledge of good and evil what that actually means is you were made a moral agent in other words if you want to be like god you've got to be responsible and oh criminy charlie i'm having a revelation here they ate the knowledge of good and evil, and the very first thing Adam does was reject the fact that he was responsible. The whole thing of eating the tree, the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, right and wrong, was that you have to then accept responsibility for that. Adam might not have been condemned if he'd have just stuck his little hand in the air and said, yeah, Lord, we, we screwed up. He might not have been. See, folks, it all comes down to, will you accept responsibility for what you do? That's the righteous life. So, and uh, while we were on it, if you like what we're doing personally, you know, maybe not me, but if you really like Charlie and Natasha and the help they give, hit the thumbs up button. That talks to them. You know, let them know you're appreciating what they do. Um. 
Yeah, Beverly Dalton. I don't know if you're responding to what just hit me in my head with with Clay's and, uh, question or not, but th- this folks, quick quick rabbit, this comment by Clay Toller. Th- this is what I mean by um, asking the right questions. Answers are easy. Ask the right question. It was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, right and wrong. <laughs> So they get condemned because as soon as you eat the tree of right and wrong, you realize that you just did wrong and you condemn yourself. And the first thing Adam did was try to excuse himself by saying, not me, but that woman you made and blame somebody else showing us that we cannot, once we're out of, out of alignment with the creator, we can't put ourselves back in it. Oh my gosh. Is there so much in that? Oh, wow. That just hit me. Thanks, Clay. That was a good question, man. I, th- that will not leave me. I love learning. Classmates teach me. That's why I wish we were all in person because you guys would teach me a lot more. Yes, Beverly Dalton, that is a wow moment, yeah, at least for me, at least for me, apparently for you too. So that's why we do what we do, man. That's why we do this. We all want to learn and understand so that we can... At least I want to learn and understand so I can conduct myself more in accordance with the desires of the creator. Yeah, Aaron, I'm going to have to smack that little field mouse on his head soon. He's just become a troublemaker. You give him a little bit of knowledge and he runs off throwing it at everybody. (laughs) We'll see you here back tomorrow. We love each and every one of you. Please stay safe. We'll see you tomorrow. We're going to talk about the Celts and, uh, the origins of the British people. Thanks for being here. Bye-bye.